340 of Breaking Kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry. Barry, every episode is special to us here on Breaking Kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry. Ask me why this one is special. Jeff, why is this this particular episode so special? Well, thank you, Barry. I appreciate you asking me a good, intelligent sure. question like that. It's almost like I fed it to you. But for the first time in over 240, 240 episodes, we have never done an episode where the match of the week involved the junkyard dog. Boom! Right there. We are doing a little JYD versus Butch Reed. Plus, there are some others involved. Magnum TA, Nikolai Volkov, Dusty Rhodes. I mean, there's a shit ton of people involved, and it is lots of fun. And joining us to discuss that is my old friend, Brother Jeff Steele. I think I may have known Brother Jeff longer than I have known the esteemed Barry Rose. How about that? What? Yes. Yeah. Hard to believe. I think you have, actually. Yes. I actually and yeah. as I uh, say in the intro to uh, Brother Jeff's appearance, Brother Jeff was one of the guys that hey, kind of smartened me up to the business. I'd kind of figured it out, but there was a, a few lingering questions. Uh, I remember one of the one of the questions I asked Jeff on a phone call. I said, uh, we're going back to you know the uh, mid-80s here. I said, what is this thing that they're talking about? That uh, Shoot. What does that mean? And Jeff goes, that's the one thing that you never want to get into as a wrestler. So I had 35 years plus, and I still remember him telling me that. So Brother Jeff, uh, who lives uh, at the time, lived in Jackson, Mississippi, uh, was a Mid-South fan for, good Lord, since the late 60s, before it was Mid-South, I want to say, uh, back when it was just the Culkins territory, and uh, then Leroy McGurk came in later. And we're going to go over a little Mid-South history, talk some JYD, uh, some Butch Reed. Uh, we're going back to the 27th of October, 1983, in a match that took place between JYD and Butch Reed for the North American Championship. Besides all that, we're going to have a little food talk on the show because, of course, Barry can't have an episode without some food uh, talk, by, by God. We're going to have a little Florida man or not because we always love that. Do want to say that more than one person, Barry, you know, last week we had the discussion of our Mount Rushmore of promoters. Do you remember that conversation? Yes. And oh, we forgot to discuss Jerry Jarrett. And I said, that is very fair. We neglected, especially because Jerry Jarrett was a guest at the last fan fest. Period. I really can't Nicest believe we forgot. Ever. Yeah. Great absolutely. guy. Yeah. And uh, he absolutely, if he shouldn't have been in the top four uh, for that Mount Rushmore, he at least at the very bare minimum should have been in the conversation bear. And I think that's fair. And I, there, it, there was a, a little bit of testiness even in the Facebook group over are not including I would not include Jarrett in my top four for a couple of reasons, which I put forth in the Facebook group. At the same time, he does deserve to absolutely be in that conversation. And while I don't think he makes top four, he certainly might be making t he makes top 10, maybe even top five. Yeah, no, that's fair. You know, he, he would be on the uh, maybe the next wave. If there was a top eight, yes. I think he would definitely belong. And he should definitely be part of that conversation. Very fair. And we appreciate uh, people uh, reaching out to us and saying, uh, how the hell could you guys, what kind of stupid idiots are you guys? I always love, you know, when people point those kind of things out to us and use uh, vulgar language. No, I'm just kidding. Nobody did that. But thank you for uh, reaching out to us. So, Barry, a couple things before we get to our match of the weekend, our discussion right. with Brother Jeff Steele. Boy, Barry, is it a great time to be a fan of tremendous TV shows right now. Uh, Barry, how uh, better call Saul? This season has just started off spectacular. It absolutely has to, and it's uh, you know, better call Saul is one of these that 
people will debate, you know, yeah, it's a good show, but maybe it's not as good as Breaking Bad. I actually think in some ways it may actually eclipse Breaking Bad. I, I do find Saul controversial opinion, controversial. I find him a more compelling character than I did Walter White. And I, at the time, Walter White was extremely compelling. But it is, you know, we've been saying this now for the last few years and with all these great shows that are taking place on television, whether it's HBO or we're going to Prime or Netflix, et cetera, it's it's almost like you and I were texting this past weekend as we do. And you were like, have you seen this? And I'm like, I hope to get to that in about three weeks. You know, it's like there's just not enough time currently if you have any sort of life where and I, you know, for me, it's a barely have any sort of life where you can actually put forth and catch all these great shows. There are so many great shows, though. Where do you start, Jeff? Well, let me just mention a couple others real quick. Uh, on HBO, on Monday nights, there is a new show called We Own This City, which is uh, it's produced by the people that made The Wire and I believe Boardwalk Empire. I'm not sure about The Deuce, but that whole uh, mix of shows. We Own the City stars John Bernthal, who was in The Walking Dead, like in season one or two. Uh, he was also, uh, he played the Punisher uh, in one of the Marvel movies. Uh, just a really terrific, underrated actor. So in the show, one of the things I think is interesting, uh, for those of you that have had a chance to watch it on HBO, uh, or maybe it's HBO or HBO, no, I think it's, yeah, it's HBO. I thought maybe it was Cinemax, but it's HBO. One of the things that I love about uh, John Bernthal's character uh, and he plays this cop who is slowly corrupted by not only what he sees around him, and it's set in Baltimore, uh, after the stories that were in The Wire, uh, and you see, you know, the uh, the drugs and uh, the political corruption, all that. And, and when he starts as a young cop, uh, for, literally, they take you from the first day he's on the beat, and there's like, it's told in flashbacks, but you see him slowly become corrupted uh, to where, you know, oh, maybe he just takes, uh, you know, a little bit here and there and to where he's like really making a big score. Uh, and he's, you know, like a lot of other, he's stealing from the drug dealers and, and things like that. But as John Bernthal's character becomes more and more corrupted, his hairdo and he's got a mustache and goatee. And when you watch this show, Barry, I want you to tell me if you notice this, he looks almost to me, I, I won't say he looks like his twin, but he looks very, very similar and reminiscent to Eddie Guerrero. And yeah, that's you know, a good call. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I'm like, man, this guy's like, he's playing uh, Eddie Guerrero, lie, cheat, stealing, you know, win, that kind of thing. So, uh, yeah, we own the city. Great, great TV show. Also, uh, Better Call Saul is tremendous. And the show that Barry was referring to when he said I texted him, Barry now available on Freevee, which I think is the former uh, IMDb TV or That's maybe right. maybe it's YouTube TV. I don't know. But uh, if literally, if you speak into your road and say Bosch Legacy, it's the new season of Bosch that formerly was on Prime. And I think the old seasons are still on Prime. If you've never seen it, you need to catch yourself up with the characters. And my wife and I started last night. We're three episodes in. And holy shit, Barry, it's another great season. I know that you haven't had a chance to watch it. But I also know that knowing the uh, the history of the TV show Bosch, you know it's going to be great. Yeah, and I, this is again. This is this is probably top of my list as soon as I can. I'm about to finish up the. I have the last episode of Ozark for the entire because this is the final season. I've seen all the episodes except for the show finale. I hope to get to that tonight. 
I still have Tokyo Vice. There's new episodes. Which I I've seen. finished now, by the way. Oh, did you? Okay. Yes, I finished. I forgot to mention that. I finished it. How many episodes are there? I think there are eight. And judging by the last episode, they are planning for a season two at a bare minimum. Okay, good, good. I uh, So that means tonight I'm going to get two finales. I'll get Tokyo Vice and I'll get Ozark. And then I'm still going to watch Better Call Saul later on tonight. But I, Bosch is now top of my list. Then I'll get to Mayan's MC. But I got to see Bosch, Jeff. Last question before we get to our match of the week. Who is your favorite character on Tokyo Vice? <sighs> it is the older cop that he played by Ken got, Watanabe. Yeah. Now where I know we've seen him in a lot of movies. He was in the movie with uh, black rain. He might've been in that. He was also, I, I think he was in the last samurai with Tom Cruise, which I know you're a huge right, Tom yes. Cruise fan. Yeah. So, no, but uh, he was in that he's, he's been uh, in a quote unquote American movies before, but he's a big star over in Japan and he plays this sort of grizzled, uh, you know, uh, beaten down cop who's sort of in his last few years on the on the force. And, uh, you know, so there's that. No, what I was going to say, my favorite character on the show, the guy that really has drawn me into his storyline. I think the actor does a really nice job is the young Yakuza guy, Sato. Uh, he's got his Great. hair slicked back. Reminds me, the character reminds me very much of a of a young Brando uh, in On the Waterfront. Uh, the guy that slowly, you know, is being corrupted by the uh, life of the Yakuza. Uh, but he sort of like is also, he doesn't want to follow into that lifestyle, but he's like, he's being surrounded by it. And he likes the trappings, you know, the, the nice cars and the nice clothes and the access to women, uh, you know, and stuff like that. But he also, there's a part of him, uh, there's a scene uh, in one of the last episodes where he goes to visit a family member in the hospital and another family member is basically telling you, you're not part of our family anymore. You've chose the family that you want to be with. Get out right. of here. Uh, and it's it just very compelling stuff. So his storyline, I think, is very interesting. Tokyo Vice is out there. Uh, I watched it on uh, HBO Max, I think. Uh, so if you get a chance, any of these shows, Better Call Saul, We Own This City, Bosch Legacy or Tokyo Vice, highly recommended. Now, that being said, Barry, let's go to our conversation about our match of the week. We're going to the Irish McNeil's Boys Club, little Mid-South action, and we're joined by my old friend, Brother Jeff Steele. Barry, you know, when it's time to discuss a match of the week, especially if you're going to Mid-South, you're going to do a great convoluted Bill Watts angle as only the legendary cowboy could do. I think it's time to call in a little somebody from the bullpen, and we're going to go to a man that I have known Holy cats, can you believe it? Like 35-plus years going back to that introductory meeting at the Superdome in Louisiana at the very first Crockett Cup. It's the man that helped smart me up. It's my old friend, Brother Jeff Steele. Brother Jeff, how you doing today? Well, doing pretty good. I tried to smarten you up. I think I went too far. <laughs> well, you know, he turned, me, he turned me into a smart ass, which I don't think right. that was what you were attempting to do. That's exactly right. Yes. So we are going to October 27th, 1983 at the venerable Irish McNeil, McNeil's Boys Club. Uh, we are talking JYD versus Butch Reed. So let's give a little background to this before uh, I throw it to Barry for his thoughts on it. We You got... JYD, Butch Reed, but then there's also this side angle going on with Magnum TA and Nikolai Volkov. And by the way, let me just say, Nikolai Volkov at this period was tremendous. 
Yes. Nobody knew how to use one of the hated Russians more than Bill Watts. So what you got is you got Butch Reed is the North American champion. He loses the belt. And correct me if I'm incorrect on, on any of these uh, following statements here uh, coming up, guys. He loses the belt to Magnum TA. Magnum TA then loses the belt to Nikolai Volkov. But wait a minute. The board of directors for Mid-South Sports uh, and the president, Charlie Lee, uh, they went down to Tampa. They had a conference, uh, a meeting. And they decided, no, wait a minute, Butch Reed should not have lost the North American champion. There was a technical uh, mistake. So they give the belt back to Butch Reed. He then defendants, uh, defends it against the junkyard dog. And Barry, can you believe, after 240 episodes, this is the first time we've ever done a junkyard dog match, my man. What'd you think of this whole thing? So this was a lot of fun, too. And you had clued me in and you said, I, I really think you're going to enjoy it. And I did. And uh you know, Watson, we've said this numerous times, too. A, a, you just said something about how Watts, if it was some sort of xenophobic angle, you know, Russians, and that's usually who he went for was the Russians. Watts knew how to do this better than anyone in professional wrestling. Nobody was even going to come even remotely close to what Watts was able to do. The other thing Watts did here was great booking and selective, careful booking of Nikolai Volkov, right? Because Nikolai, and I got to say, I think Florida did a good job with Nikolai Volkov as well. Here, Nikolai is treated as a monster. This is not the Nikolai that would become some, you know, uh, Lithuanian singing joke up in the Federation. This is a Nikolai that, you know, a big guy. And I remember when, when he worked in Florida, they were pushing him. And I always thought this was funny in the sense that I would have to imagine 95%, if not more, of the reading public had no idea. But they were saying, Nikolai Volkov, is he the next Hackenschmidt? And I'm thinking, you know, it's 1980. Who the fuck knows who George Hackenschmidt <laughs> is at this stage, you know? It's like, come on, let's be a little more current. This is as bad as the shit we do, Jeff. But everything, <laughs> everything seems to work in this angle. And that's that's the other Watts thing, is like, you know, as much look, Florida is my favorite territory. No secret there. At the same time, there were missteps that occurred. And it's like even in Mid-South, if there was a misstep, Watts knew how to kind of cover it and turn it into something that would actually work. So I, I do think as a as a promoter during his heyday, the guy was a genius. Always great to see Magnum. This is where Magnum really came into his own. Also, he had he had just come from Florida where he had some success, but this was it. This is what wound up putting Magnum on. He looks great. And Butch Reed, my God, Jeff, we have talked about Butch Reed in Mid-South and how amazing he was. He really, truly was amazing. Great promos. I think he's maybe my favorite interview that we've ever done on our show. Uh, we were lucky to have him on before he passed, but this is great stuff, and this is a lot of fun. This is highly recommended for anybody out there that wants to get a really great look at an old territory. So uh, before I throw it to, uh, to Brother Jeff, Jeff, let me ask you, I know that you had watched Mid-South and the wrestling. You were based in Jackson, Mississippi, and so you saw all this wrestling for years and years. Bill Watts did, I think, a better job of having a talent that maybe had limitations. That's probably a nice way of putting it. Like Barry just discussed with Nikolai Volkov, but the real genius of Bill Watts was the creation of the junkyard dog. 
And he turned that guy not just into a big wrestling star. JYD was just an icon to the sports fans of like uh, Louisiana, New Orleans, especially. So being there in Jackson, Mississippi, I know you went to the matches on a regular basis. How big can you can you just try to describe to the fans how big JYD was when he really started getting over, eh, let's say, 79 into 80, 81, 82? How huge was this guy over? Well, he was he was over in an unbelievable way. Of course, you know that the uh, the thing that really put him over the top was when Michael Hayes put that creamer stuff in his eyes and blinded him. And it was so big that when they came to the Superdome, they had this unbelievable show down there where they brought in himself and some others. And uh, he, he just blew the place apart. When they had the Superdome show, that was the only thing happening in South Mississippi and Alabama and uh, Mississippi. That was it. I mean, you, you either were going there or you weren't going anywhere. And I, it's just hard to say. You've probably heard the great story that occurred with uh, JYD's death where uh, Michael Jordan actually paid for the funeral. And a lot of people don't know that. Michael Jordan actually stepped up out of nowhere and didn't come to the funeral. He just paid for it. And by that time, Junkyard Dog had completely run out of money, had none. And uh, Michael Jordan stepped up and paid for his funeral. So I think that speaks a lot as to how big he was over in, in that one small part of the country. Never really got back over in Vince land. And uh, I understand that because he never was used very well. But uh, he was really over here. It was Bill Watts that, that got him over. And Watts really tried to make a, a fool out of him when he left and went to New York. And uh, he did everything he could to try to get a, a black man to replace him. And he never did come up with anybody that was quite as big as a junkyard dog. Yeah, and, you know, I, I remember uh, the angle you were talking about with Michael Hayes. Wasn't it like uh, they blinded him, and part of the angle was that they said that uh, the reason the act was so heinous was now Junkyard Dog could not see the birth of his daughter? Wasn't that part of it as well? Yeah, he couldn't see. I mean, that, yeah. that was it. And, and they they sold it to the nth degree, like with, with him, uh, you know, because kayfabe was still so in vogue that uh, they didn't want him going around uh, without – you know, people being able, you know, like he walked around without the bandages on his face or or if he went, you know, outside to a restaurant or something, they didn't want people to know that he could really see. So, yeah. So this angle, besides everything else that's going on, and there's the match with JYD and Butch Reed, as Barry said, it's it's a lot of fun. JY, I think you could tell by this point, Barry, he had started to put on a little bit of weight. As Bill Watch used to say, he's he's bulking up for the winter. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, so he had lost, I mean, cause he was really, uh, like one of the early guys that really his upper body was very developed. It's not like he had washboard abs, but he was in incredible shape. Uh, and he had big shoulders, big chest. And then he had slowly began to put on weight. And of course he had his outside the ring demons that are pretty well established and known, um, that led to him putting on some of that bad weight. Uh, and then of course, by the time he went up to the Federation, he had really put on a, a pretty hefty amount of weight, uh, no pun intended there, uh, and was really not the same guy that he had been in the early part of the eighties or really even at this point when he was still crazy. So another thing that, that I loved about this, you know, uh, was 
the the convoluted angle and the way they went out of their way instead of just giving the belt to to JYD they had to go through this you know explanation and and really this thing went on for three or four weeks before they finally did the match where JYD wins the title back from Butch Reed and they do this the angle involving Nikolai Volkov so here's another thing that's great about this video and we can talk about this brother Jeff is they talk about how uh, Nikolai Volkov brings out every week this bag of wheat to the ring with him. And the bag of wheat apparently represents the fact that the Americans had pulled out of the 1980 Olympics in Moscow. Mind you, this is uh, to, uh, 1983. So it's three years after the Olympics. But, you know, uh, Cowboy Bill Watts always wanted to stir the pot a little bit. So he brings the bag of wheat there representing the fact that the Russians now uh, you know, they have to uh, you know, buy wheat from somebody else because, you know, the Americans screwed them out of the Olympics. And that's why Nikolai Volkov hates the Americans so much. And he's here uh, on behalf. And he has made a personal plea to the United States Embassy objecting. And again, this is three years after the Olympic Games. It's just absolutely genius. And the thing about, I, I wrote down several things as I was watching this. Uh, I'm glad somebody takes notes, Barry. Here we go. <laughs> Somebody asked to. But they uh, Watts was really talking up that thing with the grain, which if you think about it, how in the world could a sack of grain, which didn't go everywhere as Watts said it did, look at that grain, it's all over the floor. No, it wasn't. I didn't see any grain. It looked <laughs> like a bag of wheat sitting there on the floor. But uh, I think Dusty Rhodes is the one that got hit with that thing, and he crashed his head into the uh, steel ring post because he had to. That was the only thing he could do to, to get color. Yeah. And he, he had to be taken to a medical facility, as they say now. Yes, of course, yes. And then before the show's over, he comes back from the medical facility. He wouldn't even have time to get out of the parking lot. He comes back. It was probably an emergency center. It wasn't an actual hospital, you know. Well, yeah, those were the days. You know, we had Doc in a Box everywhere. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But Dusty does this impassioned speech where everything he says is, he tries everything, all the Dustyisms that he had back then. And the crowd never got any of it. I mean, he's standing there screaming, I'm the son of a plumber. Uh, I was I was born this way. I, I, America, I love it. And nobody ever moves. They're just sitting there looking at him like a crazy man. I think once at the very end, when he screamed out, I'm an American, uh, there's nothing like America, they, they might have moved a little bit. But his interview went on for seemingly forever, went like 10 minutes, and nobody ever got it. They just sat there. And I thought, well, you know, Dusty, what you don't understand, we get this American speech every week from Bill Watts. He's constantly <laughs> telling us how bad, he, matter of fact, one of my quotes here, he is constantly talking about 60% of the world is under the hand of communism. Well, that wasn't true then. It's not true now, but it sounds good when he says it. And it, it probably threw Dusty for a loop because he's, he's giving this gigantic speech. He's expecting some kind of cheers or uh, something to happen and nothing ever happened. He just kept going and kept going, getting deeper and deeper. And that uh, Reeser Bowden was standing there doing the interview and Dusty just dug it a deep, deep hole, which he almost never got out of. Well, and you know, let, let's just think about the symbolism about the Russian carrying the bag of wheat, hitting the American dream with the uh, bag. Of wheat. Uh, Barry, nothing like a little xenophobia there, huh? Yeah, but I mean, so much of what Watts did, and this isn't a knock or a criticism because it was obviously very successful. So much of what he did was, you know, xenophobic. But so, Jeff, I was thinking as we're talking about JYD and 
What territory in the 70s or 80s? And then JYD was essentially, well, I guess JYD showed up in the late 70s, right? Right. It was late 79, wasn't it, Brother Jeff? Right at 78, 79, somewhere right in there. What territory? Because JYD, prior to coming to Mid South, had essentially been, I don't want to say a job guy, but essentially that's what he was, right? He was a guy that was working prelims in different territories, whether it was for Goulas or up in Calgary, where he actually did get a push in Calgary, but he wasn't getting, he wasn't JYD. A lot of, a lot of it, he was Sylvester Ritter, or, you know, I think at one point they had given him some other nickname. It but was uh, Big Daddy Ritter, I think, wasn't he? Big Daddy Ritter. How many, because th- this was essentially, the creation of Watts. And we could say, look, yes, again, he had, he had worked as junkyard dog, I believe somewhere else, but it, it doesn't matter. Watts took this guy super limited in the ring, had some sort of charisma, definitely connected with the audience and the crowd. What other territories were able to do that successfully? Well, and, and the first thing in my head, before you answer, I was going to say, well, Eddie Graham did it with dusty. Well, no fucking dusty was, already dusty and already been really successful prior to that. Well, the thing about JYD, you got to remember, this was the territory where he got over, like you say, got over really big, but think about the cities that are in this territory, Monroe, Louisiana, New Orleans, Louisiana, Jackson, Mississippi. These are all cities with a heavy African-American population and they were just begging for somebody to come in and be that guy. Now where Watts was genius is he spotted it in the junkyard dog. He had several African-American wrestlers that came in after that. And he tried to put them in that position and none of them ever worked. Not a one. He had the bruise brothers. He had, uh, the other different ones. The guy I'm trying to think of George, George Wells. Wells. Wells George, yeah. He had the snowman. The, right. The, 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 the snowman, that's good. Uh, yeah. He had, because uh, I was thinking about the Iceman, and he had several just tremendous guys with opportunity. King Cobra was here. All yep. of them. Ed crying. Carr, Boo Thomas. Absolutely. The, the great one, yeah, who I guess quit because <laughs> I'd never have seen him again. But it just, nothing was as magic as JYD. Part of that was there was a timing issue because when JYD came in, many things were happening in the South that were just over the top. I mean, they just, they really extended themselves to the point where, you know, you're going too far. People were being assassinated. Uh, different things were happening in stores around this area. They were just begging for someone to come and take that moniker. And there again, those people, if you're Bill Watts, you simply have to look at the the men and women in this area, and you have to say, hey, this is a pretty easy math. I'm in an area where Jackson, Mississippi, Greenwood, Mississippi, uh, Monroe, and New Orleans, Louisiana. These are cities where the majority of the population is African-American. If I can just give them somebody like JYD, they're going to eat it up. And they did eat it up. They ate everything he did up. And, you know, that's he was a genius in that regard. He got the right guy at the right time, gave him the right push. And with all those things considered, he couldn't lose. Bill could not lose. That was a a perfect scenario for somebody like JYD to come in and say, hey, this, this is it. 
and JYD did it. He, he did a good job. Watts did a great job. And the demographics of this area was just such that they were, they were looking for anybody to come in and take that particular role. So took, since, since you were there on the ground and you witnessed it live in the arena, tell me which one of these three guys you most associate with the, uh, the hero, I'll put it that way, that was JYD. Because in a lot of ways, JYD was a localized Hulk Hogan. So would you say that you, when you think back on the, you know, the, the era of JYD in Mid-South, do you most associate it with Michael Hayes and the blinding angle, Ted DiBiase and the emergence of the black glove, or his feud that we mentioned here with Butch Reed, which was a pretty hot program? Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because I have been watching Mid-South since way before you gave me this particular angle to think about and just to have as part of my repertoire. Uh, Excellent watched, use of the word repertoire there, Barry. Not, not Excellent. bad. But we, I've been watching Mid-South now. So I probably called you six or seven months ago and I said, this is horrible. How could anybody place this on TV? And I, you know, <laughs> but I, I hung with it and kept watching it. And it got better. The only thing I can say about Mid-South, they made it into something it wasn't. And that's when they talked about national this and national that. They never stopped having cardboard cutouts for their background, Mid-South wrestling in, in Crayola on the back wall of their, <laughs> of their uh, television program. So, again, Bill Watts is playing these cities. When they put it on television, it was a cardboard cutout of the state of Mississippi and the state of Louisiana. Now, he wanted you to think he's really in business with Fritz von Erich and uh, the guy in Houston and all around here. He wanted you to think he was with them. He never did get with them. He Sometimes he would, you know, Kerry would come in here and do Mid-South television from time to time, but they never really had the hook on with anybody. And when they tried to do it, it was too late. He, he put these angles you guys are talking about. He put them on television, but they never really caught on like they did here in Louisiana and Mississippi. And the other thing is kind of funny about his uh, cities that he worked there. If you go back and look at it, I've already talked about Louisiana and Mississippi, but really it was an I-20 thing here, Monroe, Jackson, and they, they go from they play on different nights. but this is uh i'll clean this up a little bit for my personal audience around the country uh there was a african-american girl that sat on the front row where i sat here in jackson well they whenever it was which man tell went bald that time uh, was it ken i think it was uh, they they balled it up ken mantell and he came to jackson and he, he had him a hat uh, not a hat but a boxing deal where they he wear that so nobody could see him bald well when they got to the end of the match they'd lift the bald thing off his head and you'd see him for just about two seconds and then he'd go on to win the match somehow there's an african-american girl that had talked to us that night she'd just been to the show in monroe like two nights before and it just shocked me because as they lifted the thing off of his head she started stomping around ringside saying same MF and thing, same MF that she just hollered it out over and over. And I realized then that Watts was literally running the same show over and over and over everywhere he went. 
So I, I guess if I was to look back over that time period, I'd have to say without any fear of uh, controversy or anything else, JYD was the, he was the thing. But, but who was his, who was the opponent you most associated him with though? Was oh, it, it was, Hayes, DiBiase or Reed? Uh, it would have been Hayes. Okay. But because it was just such a big deal. When I said, if you weren't at that thing, you weren't anywhere. It was played up so big that when he came back, it was, it was just unbelievable. And you know, the crazy thing is, uh, Michael Hayes was like 22 years old at the time, which is just amazing to think. And, and Terry Gordy might've been 19 if he was a day. And the fact that, you know, they incorporated the birth of his daughter and everything was just done such uh, on such a genius level. And as Brother Jeff said, this became this uh, community thing almost that, you know, uh, I, I remember there's a, a famous story about how uh, when he came down to ringside and Michael Hayes was getting after him, the, the guy, uh, a guy in the uh, in the audience pulled a gun on Michael Hayes. And reportedly told JYD, don't worry, JY, I got your back. I got your back. <laughs> you know, and that's the kind of craziness that was going on. Uh, and, and Barry, it was just a wild time. It's a wild time, and it was a good time. I, you know what? I have a question for Brother Jeff, kind of unrelated. But, Jeff, what, what year did you become a wrestling fan? Well, I probably became a, an actual fan one night when I spent the night with a friend of mine, and we just happened to watch this was not mid south yet well before that okay uh, we uh i saw the spoiler he was the first guy i ever saw on television was the spoiler and he put the claw hold on johnny war eagle and johnny war eagle began to get colored which i guess in that time period would have probably been the late 60s early 70s and to see that guy with a claw on his head start to bleed i was i was hooked at that moment and i followed my location pretty pretty good i became the uh ring announcer for uh, watts in jackson for a, a long time and actually went in and worked a little bit myself uh several years that what watts used to call barry lord yeah. richard phillips the third <laughs> <laughs> wow my sister-in-law wearing a lord richard phillips the third uh sweatshirt during wrestlemania this year <laughs> <laughs> They said, never she, must, forget. she must be a good sister-in-law. It's the only thing I could say. <laughs> gotcha. So, Brother Jeff, too, and again, this is where I was going. So you were in Jackson during the whole wrestling war, which was essentially uh, the Culkin family uh, who had worked for Watts. They they left. They started their own promotion, brought in Frankie Kane, the great Mephisto, as the booker. Actually, the Freebirds, uh, Michael Hayes, I believe, started here. I know the Gordy and Hayes actually got together, and it was like Lord Michael Hayes and Sir Terry Gordy or something like that. Did you ever go to some of those Culkin cards? Actually, I did, uh, but they were on the same night, so I couldn't go to both of them, but I did go to some of them. And uh, I'll never forget this true story. I'm sitting like in the first row, as I did everywhere anybody came. And Mike Hayes, who I thought was a great guy, I always talked to him before the matches. Uh, he was the most hated heel, even when he wasn't the most hated heel. And he got in the ring, and he was fixing to wrestle somebody. And he looked, and he found me in the crowd, and he actually winked at me that night. He, he gave me a quick wink, and I never forgot that either. Uh, I think he's a great part of WWE now, even though nobody likes to talk about WWE. I think 
Mike Hayes is, is still pretty good when it comes to that stuff. So, Brother Jeff, want to first of all say thank you so much for joining us. It's always nice to have a uh, a former ring announcer for Mid South on our Mitch Berry. Boy, that was absolutely. Fun. Yeah, so well, he's look, like a, a quasi celebrity. <laughs> y'all, y'all have to let me tell you some of these notes I took real quick. Oh, please continue. I, I didn't. Uh, I didn't really copy anything down. I just took notes. That's around here. You don't have to take, copy, copy anything. You just have to take notes. At one point during that first program, Watts said, he either said it about, uh, well, one of the three or four that were there, he said, they are good at making a mess out of a bad situation. <laughs> I said, boy, <laughs> that is horrible. And uh, then when he got to talking about the uh, xenophobic stuff, he, uh, let me see if I can find it. He talked about 60% of the world is under communism. How in the world, after pushing this guy for years, uh, he already turned him baby face. He was going to stay baby face. He still called him Hacksaw Dugan. That was the name he never wanted right. to be called. <laughs> he, he just did that. And uh, Boyd Pierce was there. And I'll never forget the second week of that program. He says, as, as you know, and I don't have to tell you, he was talking about one of the guys. I don't remember who it was. But, uh, oh, and there was one in particular where Watts was talking about somebody, one of the guys. Oh, he's talking about Dusty Rhodes and that thing with Nikolai Volkov. He talked about that, and he says, I'll tell you about Dusty. He likes to tape up his arms, and he likes to do it the rough way. And I stopped, and I said, my God, wow. if, if these 900 numbers were still in business, <laughs> he'd like to do it the rough way. <laughs> a little, and, a little uh, more about Dusty than we needed to know, huh, Bear? Right. That's for sure. <laughs> there was another, another point where Watts used the word methodicalness. <laughs> somebody was using oh. some methodicalness on somebody. And there was another point where uh, Oates was <laughs> – in the match with, I guess it was Volkov, and uh, he was l- clearly not even close. He was laying on his side, and the ref started to count. And I mean, he literally had to get out of the hold somehow so he could make a move because it didn't matter where he went unless he kicked out. That guy was going to count him out. He talked about wheat in the grain deals. That was pretty, pretty good. Let's see. Somebody actually did the Ronda Rousey pull the tight. It was Nikolai Volkov. He was being introduced. He had to do the Ronda Rousey thing and pull his tights out of his butox. And uh, <laughs> I, I noticed that Watts was always talking stand up for America. Oh, and you remember Watts called Jim Neidhart, Jim Needhart all the time. Yes, I did and, notice yep. that. Yeah. I also noticed, if you go back and listen to this, when he got to talking about Needhart, he always <laughs> talked about the bionic elbow. <laughs> he, he, he couldn't say bionic and Needhart in the same sentence. It was always need heart and Dusty was putting the bionic elbow on him. So <laughs> I thought that was good. I've got more notes, but that that's enough to kind of feel you pretty full. good. I, I always listen to Watts because he just, he literally encompassed everything from this part of the country that was just either terrible or perfect, whichever way you want to look at it. He was, a, he was a heck of a announcer though. He, he'd come out and he, he'd be the announcer and Boyd Pierce would sit there saying, and we have this week the greatest announcer commentator in the whole world, Cowboy Bill Watts. Cowboy, go ahead. And then well, he, you, he wouldn't say another word. Well, you know, the, the thing is, th- there are uh, guys that have done uh, color commentary that, you know, the, Heenan was great. Cornette was great. Uh, Jesse was great as far as, you know, they throw in the little quips or little uh, snarky comments. But Bill Watts was about as good as anybody of getting the folks at home 
uh, because that's who he was. You know, this was not he wasn't selling a pay-per-view. He was selling the weekly show. So he was going out there and explaining this angle and explaining to the home fans why you should love JYD and why you should hate Nikolai Volkov or whatever the heel was that he was 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 facing. And I don't know, Barry, if anybody was as good as Bill Watts at getting an angle over that way. He wasn't. Bill Watts was was it. Bill Watts was it, Jeff. He was, again, we, we've we talked. Bill Watts could take almost anybody. And I got to say, the the people I think he failed the most with, which wasn't his fault, were, were the JYD replacements, whether it was Master G, George Wells, or the Snowman, even Savannah Jack in like 86 or 87. Yeah. Just. None of these guys, but uh, and, but it was apparent that there was none of these guys were going to be able to do it. But Watts had a way, in my opinion, when I would watch the TV show, it was great from start to finish. Even when he had guys on that I didn't care about, he somehow was able to get them over. That's a great booker and promoter. So, yeah, Brother really- Jeff, let me just ask you one last question. We've got to wrap up the segment here. So all the years that you watched uh, Mid-South and later into the UWF years and stuff like that, tell me which year you enjoyed as a wrestling fan, which year did you think was the best year of Mid-South? Well, I don't remember the year. It had to be toward the end. The night that Jack Victory and John Tatum, Tatum won the uh, Mid-South Tag Team Champions. Yep. I don't, I don't know how they won it. don't remember what they were doing. They beat the Fantastics. Yes, but I, my whole house, we were full of wrestling fans that came over on Saturday night and watched that thing. And every guy in the place erupted when they won because we they were over with us. Everybody liked uh, John Tatum and Jack Victory. And, of course, we didn't know anything about the thing, world class and all that. The, the whole country was separated, uh, as you know. But good grief, they're wrestling in Texas every other night and wrestling here every other night. But we actually, and it was something I didn't predict coming. We actually jumped up and down out of our chairs when they, we didn't expect them to win, but they won that match. And that that was probably the last critical wrestling match that I ever saw and understood or didn't understand it, just enjoyed it. Uh, that Whatever year that was, it was just great. Barry, I know you're always open and ready for a Florida man or not segment. Are you prepared, my good man? I'm never prepared for the Florida man or not segments, but this time I am going to focus intently on every word that you say so I can walk away with 100% average on this one. You you will feel uh, uh, satiated. You will feel complete, perhaps uh, uh, almost of a sexual nature. Well, it, I, I do that all the time. But yeah. On that note, however, our first headline, man charged with public indecency after performing sexual acts on himself. Apparently he's like uh, the old Ron Jeremy uh, myth and uh, story that uh, I'm sure you're familiar with. On Monday, officers arrested Gabriel Keeler on charges of public indecency, according to the department's Facebook page. Whoa, police almost gave the name away, Barry. Police received multiple complaints of, quote, a male performing sexual acts on himself in public. Apparently very limber, this gentleman. Officers quickly located and identified this suspect, placed him into custody, and transported him to jail. The alleged acts occurred in an area which is heavily populated with small children. He's being held on charges of public indecency. Very Florida man or not. 
So again, it's funny, it's funny you made a blowing sound there. <clears throat> yeah, exactly. Right. So, if, but first off, he has my admiration uh, because that it's either he's either well endowed in great physical shape or both. So certainly uh, nothing that I possess. So I admire this gentleman. Maybe should have done it in his home or behind closed door because blowing yourself in public is never really a good that's look. Not that's not a good look. You know? No, it's not. It could affect a lot of things. I'm going to say. I'm going to say yes. I'm even going to be more specific. This gentleman was somehow in the Tampa region. Maybe it's Lutz, Bradenton, but yeah, he's he's blowing himself somewhere in uh, central to south South Florida. Absolutely. So I will just tell you, Barry, before th- this whole story reminds me of the old George Carlin joke uh, about uh, he's talking about his dog one day and how uh, sitting around with some friends. Uh, the woman says, oh, uh, look, uh, he's uh, he's grooming himself. And the husband goes, well, he appears to be licking his balls, Marge. And then, of course, the question is, why do dogs lick themselves? And George's comment was, because they can. <laughs> anyway, he's right. Barry, Monroe County, Ohio. Oh, yes, we are. We're in Travis Rain's territory here. I, you know, I'm not going to say Travis was involved, but I will say that he may or may not have known the suspect in question, Barry, the next story. Wait, what, what would, what oh, would well, Travis Rains have to do with Ohio? Is it Ohio no, no, it's, it's blowing itself? The Which part one? of Ohio, it's, it's not like Cleveland or Cincinnati. It's like in that little corner over there by uh, uh, West Virginia, uh, you know, oh, okay. and all that. Got it. So that's why, you know, and we haven't mentioned Travis in a while, quite frankly. So, you that's know, true. he's yeah. probably a little bit upset that next one, elderly golfer shoots man in ankle, beats him with a club. For walking his dog on the on the golf course, Barry, is, is that it? Okay. No, no, no. Uh, <laughs> okay. Pulling up the story here. Man is under arrest for attempted attempted first degree murder after shooting 64 year old Herbert Merritt in the ankle. He he shot him in the ankle uh, and beating him with a <laughs> golf club after he found Merritt walking his dog is very specific, Barry, along the 15th hole. Oh, of the golf course uh, around just before 7 p.m. on a Sunday. I'm guessing uh, Her- Herbert, uh, you know, he was not one of those guys. You got your golfers, Barry. Uh, when it's after like six, the rates go down. Eh, they yes. live around there. You try to sneak on the course. Now, I'm not going to disparage anybody by saying they were doing that, but I know people that have done that. The victim told deputies he was walking his dog on the grass next to the golf course when the uh, defendant w- rode up in his golf course, began causing a verbal altercation with him. Due to having his dog on the golf course, the temerity of the man having his dog near the golf course, Barry, he then began began shooting at him as the uh, the victim ran away. Apparently, the defendant chased Merritt around a tree while continuing to shoot. The victim said he shot about five rounds at him, according to the report, and told witnesses that he felt the defendant was trying to kill him. Barry, Florida man or not. I'd say that's a fair statement, too, that he was trying to kill him. Oh, you Absolutely. chase a guy around a tree and you're popping yeah. off five rounds. Yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah, I'd say so. Uh, this one absolutely is a Florida man story. It's got golf. It's got guns. It's got irrational thinking. Yes. Delray Beach, Florida, Barry. Woo. We're in Palm Beach County. The defendant, 74 years old, popping a cap in somebody uh, on the golf course. You know, you're right. This is absolutely a Florida man or not. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
Police say a 20-year-old man drove a stolen Mercedes SUV up to 178 miles an hour during a chase Monday through six counties along Florida's Turnpike and I-95. Deputies deployed stop sticks to flatten the vehicle's tires, and a canine named Zorro then helped secure the fleeing suspect, Sheriff's Office said. Now, Barry... I have identified this as a Florida story by mentioning it's on the turnpike. What I want you to do, tell me the county he was stopped in. Okay. I was going to say, I don't know if you blew that one on purpose or not. <laughs> well, you did say Florida's turnpike. Uh, I picked up maybe. on that. <laughs> yeah. So what county did this take place in? Oh, you know where the canine Zorro uh, has his residency. <laughs> yeah, I sure do. And this is tough because uh, obviously I know uh, I know three counties which would be Dade, Broward, and Palm Beach, but I don't know. Really? Don't you uh, sometimes uh, uh, find yourself staying on the west side of uh, yeah, the yeah. state? But what I what I don't know is where the turnpike, what counties the turnpike runs through directly, because when I'm on the west coast, we don't take the turnpike. Oh, I got you. Okay. So, yeah, so it's a little more confusing. So with it that, also said I-95, Barry, which runs throughout the state, of course. Yeah, it does, which 95 would take me all the way. Ah, shit. It, this, this took Duval. Down, that's what I was going to say. Duval, yeah. which is Jacksonville. All the way down to Monroe County, I believe. I'm, so I'm going to say Duval County, which is Jacksonville. This is where this happened. Uh, wrong. Yeah. So the stories from the Tampa Bay Times, fine journalistic integrity there. But the arrest, it says here, took place Port St. Lucie. Where spring training, I'm just going to point this out for our friends, Pete Letterberg and Richard Dawson. It's where the New York Mets have spring training. Port St. Lucie, 178 miles an hour. Barry, have you ever gone 178 miles an hour in a car? No, I wouldn't. I, what kind of car was this? Uh, Mercedes SUV. They actually go 178 miles an hour? Apparently, according to the Popo. Holy shit. No, I've never. I, I got to tell you, I, I think the highest, I think I hit 100 once or twice, and I, I get a little bit nervous. I'm like, what if the fucking wheels start to shake and I go down, you know? I'm just going to say now that you've mentioned that, Richard Dawson uh, will be coming to the Fan oh, Fest, shit. and he will have a citation uh, yeah. issued for you. So, all right, a next story, uh, Lord Barron's. We have uh, da, 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 da. Uh, police say they're looking for a man that allegedly exposed himself and began masturbating in Walmart and Target parking lots. See, this is what I like. This is a man who doesn't discriminate. He's not one of these highfalutin types saying, I'm not going to friggin' Walmart. By God, I'm going to Target. No, he goes to both Walmart and Target. Employees told the police they were in a parking lot of the store when they had observed the unidentified male touching himself while seated in a white Tesla that did not have a license plate. Police say the employee confronted the male. Hey, quit beating off. I mean, can you imagine that conversation, Barry? It must have been interesting. Oh, yeah. Uh, a few hours later, police responded to the Walmart regarding a male in a vehicle matching the above description, conducting the same acts in their parking lot. Once again, the male left the area when he was confronted. So this guy, Barry, still on the loose. APBs everywhere for the white Tesla, Barry, Florida man or not. Hmm. You first off, I'm picking up that you do seem to like the masturbation stories. Uh, well, we had one actually, recently. I will say, I, I will say, of course, who doesn't? But this story was actually sent to me by a listener. 
Ah, it gotcha. won't be being all judgmental. As could have, <laughs> exactly. Oh, yeah. This one did not take place in Florida. This one took place. Uh, well, I'll just say not Florida. I don't want to pitch it. So, you know, before you go making your derogatory, masturbatory comments, I will mention that this story took place in Pennsylvania. Oh, of course it did. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. Maybe. Don't you drive a Tesla, Barry? Did I, you I do. I do. Yeah. Uh, let me just ask you, do you know where Mercer County is in PA? I do not. Pine Township. I had a, you got me. Where, okay, where? I thought it was going to be in Plymouth <laughs> somewhere, uh, and uh, we found out that uh, Barry's uh, taking his uh, his alone time out to the parking lots of Walmart and Target. Yeah, no, it's uh, yeah. I'm trying to think. So we don't have. I think the nearest Walmart and Target. Target's ten minutes. Walmart's about fifteen. I've never. You're, mast- you're digging your own grave here, Mister. Yeah, yeah. I've never masturbated in those parking lots, but there is a Mission Barbecue. Literally now in that parking lot, you have masturbated. Wow. Is that what you're saying? Uh, you know, I don't, I'm not going to admit to, uh, but that soundbite Lou. Uh, <laughs> Barry, I know that you love a little food chat. That's our, that's going to be our other podcast food chat with Bowdrin and Barry. What do you think? My God, Jeff, we, I would do that on a daily basis. I mean, <laughs> do a daily podcast. You would food. not need the Patreon money for that. I can tell you that. Nope. So the other night, uh, we took uh, my uh, myself, uh, my daughter, Kelly, my son, Andy, and my uh, son-in-law, Brandon, took the sainted Mrs. Bowdrin down to exclusive Buckhead uh, in Atlanta. That's the exclusive district. Went to a little Fogo de Chao. And Barry, I can tell you, has not heard this story yet. Why? Because well, Barry went to Pittsburgh. He can't be bothered with his partner. But uh, that's another story. <laughs> but anyway, so we went to Foga de Chow. Barry, Foga de Chow is a, sort of a national chain. Am I correct? 100%. Yes, sir. Uh, and have you been to a Foga de Chow recently? I've been uh, recently. Well, let me say I was. I just didn't eat there. But I, uh, I took the young lady that I'm currently dating. The younger lady? Yeah, exactly. And we and she had never seen there. She's gonna slap me if she comes to Florida with you, by the way. She. (laughs) Well, uh, yeah, you and Penzer, I think. So yes. (laughs) Well, let her Uh, slap Penzer first because he probably deserves it. But anyway, he absolutely deserves it. So I took her to see because I always brag about the quality of their salad bar, which is not a salad bar, right? What do we call that with all the meats and fruits and all that? That's not salads. But it's, I think it's one of the best. So I have not eaten one in a couple of years, okay. but I do love me some folks. So, so it's a Brazilian steakhouse with the, uh, you know, I, I've discussed Chima down in uh, in South Florida, where, you know, they bring the skewers of meat uh, to the table. Uh, you yes. can choose if you want. Uh, you know, they have everything from filet mignon down to skirt steak. They have chicken. Uh, they have Parmesan uh, pork, uh, in, sausage, just about everything, Okay. And so we bring her to this uh, place, and I will say this is not a cheap place. Am I correct, Bear? Oh, you're paying uh, per. Jeez, I'm going to give you a a pre-COVID price, and I'm positive it shot up now. I believe it was just over fifty dollars some five years ago. It yeah, has I was going to be say more it used now. to be like fifty-five a person or something like right. that. And that is just for the you know, if you get drinks or you get a dessert, that's extra. But just yep. uh, sitting down at the table. Eat as much meat as you can till you start getting the sweats or pass out. It's minimum 55 bucks a person. Uh, I, and I don't know the exact amount because <clears throat> I didn't pay. But anyway, so we go to the Vogue de Chow and uh, we get there. Our reservation was at seven. We got there at six. We ended up getting there a little early. So we look in the restaurant and 
Yeah, there's, let's just say for the sake of argument, there's 20 tables in the restaurant, okay? I'd say five or six of them were filled, decent-sized parties. And so my daughter went up there because the reservation was in her name. She says, we're here an hour early. Can you, by any chance, seat us early? The girl says, well, I got to make sure that my uh, my people for 6 o'clock, their reservations for 6 o'clock, uh, I got to make sure they uh, come in and, you know, uh, we don't uh, use up one of their tables. And I'm sitting there thinking, seriously, you got 14 tables to fill here at 6 o'clock? Well, what they did about five minutes later, suddenly they're available now because they've checked in all the parties, even though we saw like maybe one or two people walk in. And they said, oh, yeah, we can seat you now. Well, so oh, they gosh. put us over in a table by the uh, where the entrance to the bathroom area is. Oh. <laughs> That's and no- nothing goes well with a nice steak like the smell emanating from a bathroom anyway. so Not a uh, fan of that, Jeff. Not a fan. And I will tell you, I – I don't have many rules when it comes to a restaurant, but if they try to seat me at a table that's adjacent to the bathroom, I will immediately request to sit somewhere else. I don't want, I don't want a parade of people that have to shit their brains out <laughs> eating 40 pounds of meat parading by my table, you know? Yeah, that's, that's a good rule. But anyway, so we're sitting down, and the server that came over to our table did a fine job. No problem right. there. However, problems began starting because, as I mentioned, what you have is you have these uh, – what do you want to call them? Uh, they're not uh, – are they servers technically? They're guys I, that are bringing over dressed – You know, they're carvers. Yes. There's a Brazilian name for it, and I yes, totally sure, – uh, yeah. yeah. And shout out to our listeners in uh, in Rio, by the way. And oh. so uh, they're you know the person that's a good word the carvers that that slice off your uh, your slices of whether it's uh, like I said uh, flank steak or filet mignon. There's everything in between. And so they come out. Well, we start noticing that are stopping off, and there's a couple of tables that have like you know 10, 12 people at them, and they go to those tables, and they're uh, you know. I guess they're done with their portion that they've been given to take out onto the, onto the floor. So they go back into the kitchen to get another one, except they never seem to be coming by our table. So what we have to do is when we see one of the servers, we'll go, uh, Hey, can you send one of the, uh, the carvers over to our table so we can get some of the uh, steak here or chicken or whatever we want. And Oh yeah, sure, sure. We'll go. And so there was one portion and you know, we got the little, they give you the little buttons that flip up when you're, yeah, I'm ready to eat. And you flip them over when you're done and our, all our buttons are up saying we're ready to eat. Well, there was one poor uh, point in time where 10 minutes went by before we had seen a carver. And I'm like, seriously, what the hell's going on here? And so then finally they'd come over and they do it. Well, okay. So the meal's over. And, you know, the food was fine. The one server was fine. Our problem was with the carvers. And so, uh, you know, we were kind of talking about and we, it. And we should say, Jeff, not to interrupt, but I always do. We should say this whole restaurant is built around the fact that the carvers are there. Of That's course. what the restaurant's about, right? Yeah. And so uh, I think we had had uh, – we got a uh, a dessert. And so then we were done, and it's time for the bill to come. I said, oh, I, you mind sending the manager over here? And I, I told the server, I said, it had nothing to do with you. I just want you to know. So he says, okay. So he goes over and, you know, uh, finally the manager comes over. He says, can I, can I help you? Or she says, can I help you? And I said, yeah. So here's where I knew I was in trouble, Barry. I said, you know, the old movie quote about how nobody puts baby in a corner? <laughs> Blank stare, Barry. <laughs> and I went, fuck, she doesn't get the reference. That's great, though. <laughs> <laughs> and I felt about 100 years old. And so anyway... So I said, well, I said, here's the problem. I said, I think because we were in the corner, some of the carvers maybe forgot about us here. 
I said, so, you know, it kind of hampered our dining experience. I said, because the food was fine, you know, when we got it, the guy serving us, he did fine with the drinks and, you know, got us our dessert and stuff like that. I said, but, you know, the carvers kind of, I don't know if they didn't see us or they were busy with other tables that were like larger parties or what. I said, but it kind of hampered our dining experience. And she said, well, I, I feel horrible about this. And, you know, and I told her, I said, look, I said, you know, I, I'm not here to say I want a free meal. I said, I'm not one of those people. I said, I'm not going to bitch about your server because he did a fine job. I said, and we're going to tip him what he should be tipped. I said, but I said, I figure you want to know the good and bad of everyone's dining experience. I said, and the carvers disappointed us, I think, uh, because they just weren't around that often. She says, well, you know, I, I'll see what I can do because uh, I don't want your experience to be an unpleasant one. So she walks away and I'm sitting there thinking, eh, you know, she takes, uh, takes the desserts off. Okay. Or something like that. I would have been completely satisfied with that. Okay. Sure. The bill comes over. My son and daughter were paying, you know, it was Mother's Day. They were taking mom uh, out for dinner. So, Perry, just with the scenario I've given you, what do you think uh, you, as a manager, would have taken off that bill if you were going to take something off the people's bill? You're the manager of Foga de Chow. How much you take off the bill? So, first off, I wouldn't have taken anything off. What I would have done son is— Son of a I, bitch. But I would have made it a little bit better. What I would have done— is I would have given you maybe a voucher for two to come back for dinner or something like that. I would I would rather, instead of discounting the meal you have, give you a reason to return. So that no, I get that. I get that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so my assumption is if you're asking this question, they picked up a round of drinks and that was about it. $100 off. Oh. Plus Good. five $15 gift cards. Best ever. I was like, I got to be honest with you. I didn't expect her to do that. Like you wow. said, you know, if she had come and get it, to be honest with you, if she'd given us, you know, uh, three or four $15 gift cards, I would have said, okay, at least she's, she's making an attempt. And I completely get the whole, let's bring them back in to try again, you yeah. know, and that's what the gift cards are for. I get that. But the fact that she took a hundred dollars off plus gave us the five $15 gift card, you know, that that'll bring us back. So uh, I thought that was very decent of her. I do want to mention, uh, Barry, the night we went there, it was Mother's Day. So, uh, you know, a lot of the ladies were, uh, were out there uh, dressed in all their finery. Barry, do you understand what I mean when I say we had a lot of women that were six ounces in a four-ounce can? Yeah, I, I do get that. Well, you know why? I'm a big fan of sausage, by the way. So. <laughs> I, I understand exactly what you're saying right now. Yes. Yeah. The, the, well, let's put it in terms of a, of a Pillsbury biscuit. Okay. There was a four <laughs> ounce can and they were trying to squeeze six ounces in that four ounce can. Yeah. There was a lot of spillage going over the top. If you know what I'm talking about. Oh yeah. Got it. Got it. A lot of muffin tops is what you're well, saying. Well, you know, muffin, muffin tops. tops, a lot of bottom tops too, but uh, yeah, definitely the muffin tops were on full display at the Atlanta Buckhead location of Fogo de Chao. Barry, another fine episode as we do the old uh, heading down the stretch, uh, much like much like that sh uh, that horse in the Kentucky Derby. Did you hear that? Uh, Barry? <laughs> Eighty to I one. Did. Eighty to one. Yep. He was put in the race like two days before the race. Another horse got scratched, and they put him in. Just an incredible, incredible story. And uh, holy shit, I don't know if you saw the highlights, Barry. That horse was moving down the stretch, boy, and uh, overtook the two favorites of the race. Good, good stuff. Barry, are you about ready to call it a day? Now, I want to keep going if we can, Jeff. I want you to want see to how long. 
Do you want to talk about the Preakness and, uh, you know, the Belmont, yes. the other horse? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> a new segment here on Breaking Kayfabe, uh, horse racing this week. Yeah. So, that being said, on behalf of my uh, co-host, Barry Rose, our producer, the sweet man. I, I, I pointed out today, Barry, recently I've been calling him Lewis. So Lewis Kippelman, our producer. I am the booker, Jeff Bowdrin, Breaking Cafe Bowdrin and Barry, a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Take it home, Lewis! <laughs>